Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome uh, to another episode of Authentic Act. Today, I actually have a very special guest with me, um, Tracy Maxfield. Tracy is a former nurse. Uh, she's also a speaker and an author. And now she's actually on an interesting journey where she's traveling around the country impacting children's lives when it comes to mental health, mental wellness, and also bullying. Uh, so this is going to be a real impactful episode, something uh, Tracy and I, between each other, haven't been able to speak about, but something we're tremendously both passionate about. Obviously for her, you know, starting this journey and going around the country. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Tracy and go right into some of the stories and what motivated her into where she's at now and the point of her life. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, ma'am. So tell us a little bit about your background, kind of give people a uh, beginning chapter of your life um, and tell us a little bit about what got you to where, what you're doing today now with, with children and mental health. Okay, so I was born many, many, many moons ago in Wales in the United Kingdom. Was born into a very dysfunctional and abusive family. Um, it was primarily emotional abuse. And from the age two, I was wanted to be a nurse, just instinctively knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, at the age of five, watching all the TV cops and robber shows um, <laughs> on the one of three limited TV stations we had back then in the UK, always wanted to come to the States. Um, and that kind of kept me going through all the the horrors and the abuse and just the life was very challenging. Uh, after I completed my nurse training, I decided, yay, let's come to the States and found out that it was a little bit more difficult to get a green card than I anticipated. Mm -hmm. But because the UK is part of the Commonwealth nation and Canada is, it was much easier for me to come to Canada. And they were actually looking for nurses at that time. So in June 1987, with two bulging suitcases, I boarded a plane and left my old life behind and arrived in Calgary, Alberta. Um, so started nursing in Alberta, met my husband, who's now my ex, but at the time met my husband, got married, moved to the West Coast. Um, was still dealing with my family at that time until an incident occurred in 1993, um, which sent me spiraling down um, into a depression. And at that point, I severed all communication with my very dysfunctional family. Um, that depressive episode with counseling and medication resolved actually in a reasonable time frame, maybe six months, and life went on. About mm -hmm. 13 years later, lots of life stresses going on, and I experienced another depressive episode. Um, at that time, I went to see a psychiatrist who felt that I actually had a genetic component based on family history. All the females on my father's side had experienced some type of depression. Hmm. And so um, at that point, he kind of forewarned me that in anywhere from 10 to 15 years, I was likely to have another episode of depression and he felt it was best I'd start on a low dose of antidepressants for the rest of my life. And so life went on, um, certainly didn't 
you know, mark my calendar, watch out, depressive episode about to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in um, 2011, started um, a new job, much, much more stressful, overseeing 23 other nurses, and at that point started to deal with bullying from a superior. Um, Hmm. kind of it was getting me down but I really enjoyed my work and I kind of threw myself into my work in 2012 things really started to change Um, my husband and I weren't able to have children we had dogs instead one of the dogs unexpectedly got very very sick and was dead within four days and I felt a change happening inside me which I couldn't put my finger on Um, but couple of months later we ended up going to marriage counseling a month after that we separated a couple of months after that I was bought out of the house and I ended up buying my own place and moving away and starting life as um, a mature woman now single Um, meanwhile things were just getting worse and worse at work until in August 2015 Um, The workplace stresses were so bad. It was endless bullying and harassment and intimidation and threats and texts and um, just, you know, calling into the office and kind of tearing a strip off me and warning me. And there was a meeting and uh, it was absolutely horrendous. It was full of lies and false allegations and personal assassinations on my character I went home. I was just totally distraught. I threw myself into bed. I cried and cried, thought the end of the world. When I woke up the next day, I couldn't move. I thought I'd had a stroke. And when I finally was able to sit up in bed, I felt like someone had come by in the night and just poured cement all over me. And I was actually crawling around. I could not even physically stand up to move. And all day Friday, it was just kind of, trying to make sense of what had happened but my brain was just numb and it was just buzzing and I I just couldn't think things through it was just horrible just this pervading sense of hopelessness and helplessness and on the Saturday I counted out 44 pills 44 Tylenol or acetaminophen and uh, brought up the first pill to my mouth and a voice in my left ear suddenly said run and I ran I grabbed my purse, threw on flip-flops, and I jumped in my car, and it was 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, drove around, and ended up in Walmart, because where I live, it was the only place that was open. And I looked an absolute mess, a total mess, but I wandered up and down the aisles in Walmart until I felt I was strong enough to go home and put the pills away, because I was really scared. Um, when I realized what I was about to, what I was about to do, And on the Monday, I went to see my physician and she told me that I'd had an acute depressive episode and I was in a major, they call a major depressive state or in layman's terms, a massive nervous breakdown. And so began my life in the rabbit hole. Um, It was unlike any of the other depressive episodes. Um, It was constant suicidal thoughts, constantly. Um, And it was every single day. It, first I went minute by minute, then it was hour by hour, and then over time, when the medications were titrated and I had a therapeutic level, it was day by day. Um, but it was just every day was a fight to get through and not, not succumb to death. 
and um, I'm a Brit, so and I was living on my own, so I had no choice. I had to get up, I had to feed myself, take my medications, go to the doctor, get groceries, and being a Brit, uh, you always want to look your best. So I went out clean and well groomed, and so when people saw me, they saw Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't look deep enough into my eyes to see there was no life in them, but they saw Tracy. And so when they saw me and asked how I was doing, I would give the usual, I'm okay, or I'm fine. And then I would proceed to tell them what had happened and what was wrong with me. And I used to have the most uh, ill-informed responses. It just showed how ignorant and misinformed people are. And I would have comments like, well, you can't be depressed, you're out in public. Um, or you must have the mild form. Um, oh no, the doctor's diagnosed you. Look at you. That's impossible. You can't have depression. Um, you look normal. You need to go back and get another diagnosis or, mm-hmm. you know, go to, go, go to church, pray harder. And I was getting so frustrated. And so my psychologist said, why don't you start a blog and invite people that you really want to share your story and tell them just be very, very honest, what life is like, how you feel. And so that took a lot of courage. I am denied about it for about six weeks. And then I thought, you know what, let's just do it. And I did the first post and almost immediately I was getting feedback. I didn't realize it was that bad. I'm so sorry. You need to put this in a book. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then of course more posts and more posts. And the post ended up being my life story, what happened, you know, my suicide attempts, everything. And every single time I had doctors and nurses and psychologists uh, messaging me saying, Tracy, you really need to put this in a book. We're learning so much. We really didn't understand what depression was like and the physical effects you have as well. And so on LinkedIn, actually, in the June um, I, I connected with um, someone who had published her own books and she was an editor. And I contacted her and said, everyone keeps telling me this is a book. Could you take a look at my blog and just be really honest and tell me is it book worthy? And so she lived in Montreal. I sent her the link on a Friday morning and like three hours later, she sent me a message and she said, I've got you an editor in Toronto. Wow. That was, that was it. Um, that was in um, 2017, in June. I connected with my editor, Julie, and so began the book. And it comprised three parts. It was the actual blog was the first part. The second part was excerpts from my journal, because I've always journaled when I'm stressed and when I'm trying to figure things out. And so I had journaled from the moment I fell down the rabbit hole, trying to figure out what was happening, what was going on with me. And so we took episodes from that. Plus I also, um, about, I would say six months in, I started to express gratitude. And my doctor and psychologist had said, you know, we know you're here in the rabbit hole and you see no future and you don't even know how to move forward. But, but you've got to try and switch your mindset and look at something good that happened to you today. And I thought, okay, this is going to be hard. And so the first, you know, few entries were, what what was good that happened to me today? Um, I didn't kill myself. Um, I got out of bed and I stayed out of bed. 
I went out to the store. And after a few months, um, I started realizing that gratitude had to be more than just thankful for, you know, getting through the day. Um, what else brought me pleasure or, or made me smile or gave me joy? And I started looking around and it was a flower. It was the, it, it was the first flower um, of, you know, spring. It was a purple crocus um, coming out through the snow. And so that's when my gratitude started changing and I started living in the moment and being more mindful. So in last year, April 2018, my book was published. And shortly after, I was asked to go to a local school to talk to teenagers. They were 15 years old about how I'd used imagery in my book. And um, I thought I was going to go and give... Um, you know, ideas on how they could write better when they were doing creative essays. Instead, uh, they wanted to talk about the rabbit hole and my depression and suicide. And they wanted to know more about what they could do to support others and or what they could do themselves. And it ended up that practically everyone in that class, if they didn't have a mental illness or were experiencing bullying, they knew someone. Mm -hmm. The uh, following week, I was invited back to an all-day human library where the kids would sign up ahead of time to sit at a table, and it was about pursuing future careers. And so they'd asked me to come as an author. And so the first group walked in at 8.30, and they were ranging in age from 11 to 15. And I started talking about how to write and publish a book, and they were kind of looking at themselves as kids do, and I knew something wasn't right. And I stopped and I said, you seem confused. Um, can you tell me why you signed up to, sit, to you know, sit at my table? And they said, you're the lady that escaped the rabbit hole. We, we want to know how you did it. And so it began. Every single group that sat down wanted to talk about mental illness and suicide and bullying. And they started sharing their stories. And at the end of each class, um, I would have kids standing behind, waiting to talk to me privately. I had a 15-year-old girl whisper very quietly in my ear that she had just come home from hospital after attempting suicide for the second time. Mm -hmm. And then she showed me her arms and all the cutting she had done. And then towards the end of the day, I had a 13-year-old boy who was lingering behind, and he was very shy and withdrawn and hadn't participated in that particular group. And he came up and he was stammering and very embarrassed and he asked me can I talk to you and I said of course you can and he just fell into my arms and started sobbing his heart out and said I've been in the rabbit hole for seven years when will I ever escape and I spent about 20 minutes talking to him and I drove home I was absolutely sobbing my heart out because I could not believe I'd actually had 63 teenagers come and tell me what they were living with. And I thought, this is impossible. This must just be this school. There can't be that many kids out there going through pain and attempting suicide because they feel there's no life for them. And I went on Google and I started looking at research statistics and I was just absolutely horrified. Like one in five uh, teenagers have a mental illness. 
50% of all lifetime mental illnesses will show symptoms by the age of 14. 75% of all lifetime mental illnesses will show signs and symptoms by age 24. And at that point, I thought, okay, girl, change your mission. You're going to go and promote your book, but you're changing the focus because it was just promoting book and mm -hmm. talking about mental illness and stigma for adults. And I thought, no, these kids have no voice. You've got to get out there and you've got to be a voice for the kids. And that became my mission. And here I am. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, it's really kind of brought some tears to my eyes because I, I was one of those kids, you know, not necessarily speaking with you, but I, I walked in those shoes. Yes. And so many have. Right. Yes. And fortunate enough for me, um, I had a, a mom, you know, my, my dad was a school teacher and my mom worked with physical um, and mentally disabled kids in the school system. So obviously very familiar with the school system and she ended up quitting her job just to stay home with me through all of this because she realized how severe it was and how important it was in my life. And absolutely, man, I mean, you needed support. And, and, and even with that support, the, you know, the, the pain that's still there, oh, um, yes. you know, and, and, but being able to feel the pain, I had support my whole life and, but to be able to now look back and see, kids that don't have that support and then hearing exactly. what you just said I mean it, it's it it's it's heartbreaking I mean that that alone just threw every question off I had just I had for you right this second um until I kind of get my mind back right because it took me to a place just hearing what you said being in that situation myself and just feeling misunderstood, feeling like you don't have a voice and feeling and really not knowing the words because at that age, you know, what, how, how do you even explain something and you're still learning to explain everyday average things yes. on a normal basis? How, how can you even begin to explain something you can't touch, feel or see? Uh, absolutely. And words, you know, and it's especially to an adult and, you know, you're, there's already that fear there that, you know, with being so young, um, just finding the right words to articulate that, just it, that within itself is one of the, probably the hardest things. And for those kids to open up to you the way they did says a lot about what you were doing and what you were offering them in that moment, because that takes a whole another level of confidence to expose that, especially to a stranger. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. And people have asked me that every time and I'm still amazed, but I think it was because I've, I've been there. Um, the, th the thing with kids is, and as you know, um, it takes a lot of trust, especially with adults whilst they're trying to find their own footing and they think they're mini adults inside okay. their brain they're in an inner turmoil because they they don't quite know how to navigate that kind of world but they want to be um, treated as um, you know independent um, people who are in control of their lives and that they have a say and it's tr it's so confusing trying to make sense that you've got all these other emotions and pain and feelings when the world is telling you you should be enjoying life and have no worries and i think because in my book um lots of teenagers have have read it and i have a lot of illustrations and the illustrations really resonate with 
um, the teenagers because they're very simple illustrations. They're like black and white stick figures almost, but it's of a mouth screaming. And the stick figure is running away from this enormous black cloud with arms coming out of it to just, you know, grab the person. And I chose to use illustrations on my blog and then I transferred them to the book because sometimes words aren't necessary. Um, a drawing speaks volumes. And the kids immediately identified those with those because I, I'd had them, um, lots of illustrations um, enlarged for the book release party. So people would really get to understand what the book was about. And I took them with me um, and you could see them all. I could hear them whispering and nudging each other like, that's how I feel. And there was an, there's another one of um, an image in a mirror, but it's broken into so many pieces. And it's a double image because it shows that you can't even recognize yourself, but it also shows that your brain is shattered. And, you know, lots of the girls were saying, that's how I feel. Um, and so I think it was that ability for them to recognize, okay, she's been there. She knows what it's like because not only did she write it, she's got drawings that can that capture that. Mm -hmm. And now she's sitting here and she's telling us, guess what, guys? I've been there and it's not easy, but you can make it. It's kind of like it was that last vestige of hope that I was giving them. And that, that was the intent of the book. I didn't want anyone to ever feel they were on their own. And I wanted them to know that, guess what? This isn't easy. It's going to be the hardest fight of your life but you can get through it you really can and there is hope and I think it was that you know with kids uh, they want to have that hope that what they're going through will end that pain will end because the thought of it staying with you forever is so overwhelming that's why so many of them choose to end their life um, because you cannot conceive how you can keep going on in this horrendous, overwhelming, suffocating darkness and pain. And I think I, no one was more, um, you know, kind of gobsmacked than me when they all kept coming up, sharing their stories. And I think the school were taken aback as well because they, they never for one minute thought that they had so many of their students that were in such horrific pain emotional pain and I think that surprised them as well yeah. but uh, I mean we need to you, you've you've been there and so again kids will automatically identify with you because you have walked the walk and they find it harder to talk to a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist who can quote from the textbook I know what you're going through uh, but they can't you just actually <laughs> right you just took the words out of my mouth. That was literally the next thing I was going to say because you kept mentioning living it and being in that moment. And I refused to go to a psychologist as a child. It was, you know, it was something that my mom kept dragging me to one after another. And finally I connected with one woman who had her own journey. And that's what, what, prompted me to go to, you know, finally stick with a psychologist and, and, and not show my tail and, and not to find a reason for this person not to want to see me again. Because like you said, I couldn't relate to any of these people because I felt like I was just being sold something. 
Absolutely. Yes. Even, even at an early age, I was so fearful of, and then, and then having to go and, you know, tell the story every time. So not only are you having to, to share this experience with a stranger, you already feel doesn't understand the frequency you're speaking on, yeah. but then to relive that pain every time having to rehash the same details, the same thoughts. It um, opens up wounds again and it, again. It yes. does. It does. And you mentioned that earlier too, when, um, you know, the kids were looking at each other and saying, you know, I, I'm going through this, but when other kids and other people are saying, Hey, you're fine. You know, you're, you're, you're doing great. This made me 10 times worse when I was growing up. Even now people see me and they see me smiling or they see me, you know, doing podcasts or trying to start a business or whatever positive thing people look at and say, Oh, that's a great thing to do. That has nothing to do with what goes on in my mind has nothing to do with what goes on behind closed doors. Amen. Yes. It, it takes yes. everything out of me to be able to do that and to just put on that act. And that's where authentic act was formed because, you know, if you hear Shakespeare say, you know, we're all actors, you know, on the stage. On know, a stage. Yes. yes. And then I felt like I was always acting. I was always putting on a show for everybody else. And same thing growing up, especially in school, I would use humor. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would use humor to escape my own mind. So then um, you know, I was always did really well in classes. I was always in the advanced classes and that within itself is almost forced too because of the obsessive compulsive that, you know, I trained my mind that I had to focus on something and obsess over something positive. Um, but still that positive, uh, association was still negative because I would drive myself crazy over it. But even in school, you know, kids would look at me like if, if for a second, you know, my head was down or I was quiet. What's wrong? Are you sick? Are you okay? Like what's going on? And then you can't even fathom to explain that to people because when I did exactly to your, your journey now, I got bullied, I got picked on and you're, you know, you're talking about somebody that was in sports who was an extrovert who, who kind of had this uh, illusion mastered almost nobody knew except for every teacher that I had uh, and then a f- maybe one close friend growing up, I, he had an idea and it wasn't until later in my life we really talked about it. Uh, but he kind of always knew, but accepted, accepted me for it. Um, but what made things worse was always having to put on that act and always feeling the need to perform. And then when I did open up, I, I then became a bully myself. I then started using bullying or, or, or rash words or actions to defend myself. Cause it's almost like, like you said, a wound is, I, I felt like a wounded animal because if I didn't make it to the, the top of the hierarchy and the top of the food chain, which for school children, you know, it's, it's to be that cool person is to have the cool uh-huh. clothes is to be in sports is to be well known and want to socialize and sit and eat lunch with to be away from in that bottom lower tier of being picked on. I then tried to transform myself and then to put on uh, an act of, of, of being defensive myself. And that, and that took me into another turmoil, you know, because then I was acting like somebody that didn't align with my character whatsoever. I didn't want to see people go through pain. I'd go home and cry about myself and I'd cry about the other person's feelings that I hurt. And then the next day would go apologize and then turn right back around and do it again. And it was just never in the yes. cycle because I had no other way to defend myself. I couldn't talk to any counselors. Um, there was always a certain uh, teacher or coach that, that would kind of help me along the way. But other than my 
my mom and, and, and people like that really close to me, I had no idea how to handle this and, and let alone explain it to somebody because then that's a whole nother joke that's waiting to be told. You know, you're not going to set yourself up for a joke that somebody doesn't even know about. Exactly. And you're not going to set yourself up to have someone invalidate what you've just said to them. Oh my God, um, that, that kills you, you know, because when that, they... That, yes. <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than having the courage to finally speak up and own what's going on with you. And then you tell someone and they either don't believe you or they just go, oh, that, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. What have you got to be depressed about? Look at you. you. You know, you're a grade A student and you're the most popular kid in school and you've got every single, um, you know, video game and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you just, yeah, I could, you just want to scream and go, you're not listening to me. And that's why, I mean, yesterday, um, I'm not sure if you saw on LinkedIn, I put an illustration that a teenage boy had done. Uh, yeah, I actually shared that one. I, and it, that, it's that actually, was, and it's funny. actually quite horrific. And I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to post this because sometimes you've just got to get in people's faces to get them to wake up. And this is how he felt. And I totally, completely identified with him. Just that silent scream and your mouth is open so much that you think your jaw's going to burst because that's how I used to be in the shower. Just screaming and screaming for the pain and the torment to go away. And, you know, you could, just looking at it, just even the strokes of how much confusion and pain and anger and, first, you know, torture he was going through. And I, I just thought, you, you know, this is it. You've got to see, this is what our kids are feeling. And they're trying to tell you, you're not listening. And even then when he draws it, you know, I wonder how many of them still invalidated that drawing, you know, and just said, Oh, you're exaggerating or, Oh, you're weird. You're weird. And, you're different. Yeah, you're right. Odd. And it, yeah. And it just frustrates me so much because I hear these kids' stories, and then I ask them, okay, so how are mom and dad? And it's like, they don't believe me, they don't care, they don't listen, and Ooh. I've spoken to so many parents, <laughs> and I, I'm very transparent, and sometimes I just have to be, you know, very, not, I'm never rude or disrespectful, but I, I just say to them, how would you feel tomorrow if you found your child dead in bed? And, you know, you can then hear them go, oh, my God, my life would be over. And I would then I respond and say, but how do you know that that is not going to happen tomorrow? Because your child is screaming at you, screaming that they're in so much pain and you're not taking the time to sit down and tell them that you're mm -hmm. hearing them and you're going to help them. And that's my, this is what I'm trying to do. And there's still so many people that you know are shutting that door because they don't want to know or I think with lots of them it's on opening the door to their childhood which was not very nice and of course if they haven't dealt with their childhood and what they went through some of them find it very difficult then to even help their own children it's like and, a, do a domino effect yes and we've got to try it. We have to break the cycle. And I'm a huge believer in we really need 
to start, as soon as kids go to school, they need to start understanding what mental health is, because we all have it. It's essential. Mm-hmm. Our brains are essential. They need to understand what mental health is. And they need to understand that, you know, life is not, a, uh, is not all sprinkles and candy, candy cane and candy floss. It, you know, they're going to have bad moments and stresses and anxiety and fear and pain are normal. They're yeah. mental distress, but kind of show them how they can manage it. And, you know, how they can incorporate coping strategies and de-stressing strategies into their life and also start introducing them to different mental illnesses like ADHD and autism is included in the DSM, psychiatric Mm -hmm. manual, even though it's it's classified as a neurocognitive disorder, but, and depression, these are normal it, it may happen to you or it may happen to your best friend. And so let's understand so we can support each other as well. And I think if we start introducing that, we're going to have stronger, better adjusted kids, but also kinder, mm-hmm. more understanding kids. And as they go into their teenage years, I think they may be better able to cope with what life then throws at them and hopefully reduce the bullying and you know the suicide um it has i mean it has to start somewhere and i i'm meeting six-year-olds with depression Mm -hmm. you know tracy this is literally one thing and that truly pisses me off is the school system and Mm -hmm. how it's pretty much set up to fail Mm -hmm. you you are set up to, to fail the minute you walk in that door, Absolutely. it is institutionalized to the point of, I mean, we can go down that rabbit hole for hours and that's a whole separate podcast within itself, but how, and I'll use these words lightly, you know, how the powers at B control the school system to a point that it's a nine to five job, eight to five, eight to three, eight to four. Uh-huh. The minute you step in at kindergarten, from the time you leave in 12th grade, 12 years of these human beings life is through this turmoil and through the system that's so militaristic and jail like that. I mean, there is one of the biggest root causes because if you're placing a person in an environment for that amount of hours in a day, on top of going home, then trying to unravel all that, then balancing work, then balancing life, then balancing everything. You've got a child that doesn't even understand their own self. Exactly. Experiencing all this in an environment that does not support it at all. Exactly. It's, oh my God. It's. I agree. Oh my God. It's. We're we're treating them. Yeah, we're treating them like we're expecting them and treating them like adults. And yet we've never even sat down and given them the tools and shown them how they actually start transforming like that. Um, And the expectations, so unrealistic and so much pressure on being the best and getting the best grade and schoolwork. And it's like we've we've got to get back to basics. We've got to start you know, instilling values of kindness and respect and understanding and 
support and social connectedness and you know things like that we really have to because ultimately you know it's what's really sad is the majority of kids teenagers especially who are now choosing to end their life by suicide are the grade a students yeah you know and the parents Yep. And say they had a brilliant future ahead of them. No, they didn't. They didn't believe they had a future because no one was sitting down and listening to them. And you I know, think that, that's what's important because Tracy, if and you, you hear a lot of people talk about their parents in positive lights, but one thing I will say about my mom is that she is truly, I don't want to say one in a million, but one in a and a and a lot of thousands that truly was aware and took it firsthand and that's not something that we see a lot of like you just said is because i i would have killed myself there was count countless nights where excuse me that i would be in the kitchen holding a knife up to my chest my mom would come in and just sob and crying back and she would never try to stop me and that was always the interesting part i never understood as a child but i understand as a young adult because she understood me and understood my mind better than I could ever fathom at that of point course. in my life. Maybe even now, I think the woman still probably maybe gets me more than I get myself at times. Um, but she would stand there just crying and say, son, you cannot give up on me. And more importantly, you cannot give up on yourself for everything you put and work towards to get to where you are. And to me, where I was at was nowhere. You know, but she put it in a light for me that says, you've worked this hard to understand and control your mind. Why would you throw it all away? Why would you? And she would say our hard work because she was right there every second of the day with me. And it wasn't to the point where I was overly sheltered um, because it, it, it was just this weird balance that is so rare. And like you said, talking to some of these other parents, and I think too, to build on your point, I think parents are also scared of what other parents are going to think and what other teachers and coaches will think. Uh, My mom sure as hell didn't. She would hold me by the hand, walk me into school, uh, usually about an hour early before all the other kids would get there every first day of school and sit down and talk to the teacher and schedule a meeting and explain to them exactly what I was going through, exactly what I was diagnosed with. And, and for her to be the first person to call, if I were to do something wrong. And that was the thing about, about my mother's that if I was in the wrong, Oh buddy, was I, in some, was I in some trouble? Absolutely. And you have to do that. That's right. It was such a fine tuned balance. I still don't understand today how, how she did it. And, and like every other parent, there was mistakes, but what she did with me, you know, I, I would be in the bathroom, for example, and I've got a younger brother that's four years younger than me. And she would bathe us together as young children. And, I'd look at her some days and say, mom, I, I really feel like I need to drown my brother, Michael. And she'd look at me and she'd ask me, son, why do you feel this way? And we'd go through that conversation and, and I couldn't really explain it. And then she said, those are just thoughts that are entering your mind. Lee, who you are as a person, you do not believe in that. Do you son? And I would sit there and answer. Her. And she said, you're, you are in control of your mind the thoughts that you have are not in control of who you are. And sometimes she would even walk out of the bathroom. She said, son, I believe in you. 
I believe in the yeah. person you are and the heart that you have and everything you stand for. You're not going to do anything to Michael. You don't want to do anything. She left the bathroom and would watch me through the crack of the door and just watch and see how I would act. And I would just sit there playing with my hands and just really not really understanding where these thoughts were coming from, but almost having like an alternative voice in my head and, and, and try, you know, try saying that to somebody else, you know, and you tell somebody, Oh, I hear a voice in my head that, that says I should hurt somebody. <laughs> they couldn't call, you know, people can't call 911 or prescribe you or tell you you're crazy fast enough. So yes. dealing with it all is. that internally, mm -hmm. you know, it just builds and builds and builds. And if it was it not for that woman, Lee Everett would not be here because through that journey, through those experiences and having that person there, if I hadn't had such a self-aware mom or even a fraction of what she put in, there's no telling where I would be. I would, cause they actually tried to send me to cherry hospital. I had three different doctors trying to institutionalize me at five years old, five years oh, old. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. See, and again, that's, Oh no, 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 no. That's Medication, just... uh, prescriptions. They over prescribed me, shot my heart rate up so high through the roof. She, she said they had to give me six volume and the, and the security guard walked me around the hospital for hours and hours and hours just to bring my heart rate back down. And that's another thing too. It's, I want to touch on with you, if you don't mind. I mean, man, this is just such an impactful conversation. Um, what is your thoughts now, and and especially being a nurse, uh, what are some of your ideas around medication and how you see a lot of doctors now over-medicating, you know, a lot of SSRIs, um, a lot of misdiagnosis, a lot of general diagnosis, and having that translate into the school system with medication and with the title of having that illness and leaving it at that, what are, what are some of your thoughts around those things, Tracy? So, you know, I, medication saved my life when I was in the rabbit hole. It really did. If I had not um, been, um, when I fell down the rabbit hole, I was on um, Effexa and that had been quote unquote, my lifetime antidepressant um, obviously hadn't done anything. I was put on Zimbalta and regulated my dopamine, which I needed. And so, Yes, it saved my life. Having said that, um, I believe there is um, at certain points, especially maybe when you're in the, the, the very acute stage, that a medication may be helpful. But mm -hmm. I, I can't stress enough that medication will not cure you. That's right. It really won't. And my concern is that at five or seven or nine years old, even as a teenager, your brain does not fully form. If you're a female, the last piece of the brain to form is your frontal lobe. Uh, male and females is the frontal lobe. In females, it doesn't fully form until you're anywhere between 21 to 23. In males, it doesn't fully form until 24 to 27. Mm. And your frontal lobe is your executive function and your, your behaviors and your social appropriateness and your risk taking. And so that's not even fully formed. So you can imagine it's in the early stages of development at five, at seven, at nine. But we're now going to introduce a chemical into that equation to try and regulate your thoughts and your moods but your brain is developing all the time and so that medication um i initially it may be very effective to maybe um 
bring the behaviors or the thoughts or the emotions to a more manageable level, but then you have to employ other things and it has to be a healthy diet and exercise. It really does. And yes. it has to yes. be, it has to be so inclusion and social um, connections. Um, you know, even they're even doing studies now in older people and loneliness is the biggest killer. But we have so many kids and teenagers who are saying they've never been so lonely in their life because social media is not um, a substitute for actually going out with your friends and sitting down and joking and laughing and sharing stories or playing if you're a child. And we've, we've removed the ability to have an imagination and play with children as well. And so I really think that that social connection is very important in relationships. And then we have to have that support system with counseling. And it, it is trying to find that fit because I believe that just leaving a child on medication and then the parent going and saying it's not working and increasing the dose or adding another medication, it's going to severely impact your brain's development as it is. But also, I mean, you know, you've still got to help that child strategize and try to develop, you know, methods of expressing themselves, whether or not it be by talking or drawing or poetry or, or writing stories or, you know, coloring, whatever. There has to be an outlet for them to try and express what they're going through and how they're feeling. And then working with them to, okay, you're feeling like this. Why don't we try this to see if this helps? Did you find that helpful? Because the child has got to start developing their own strengths and their confidence that they can then go on into the next year and the next year managing this mental illness. Because for many of them, it will become a lifetime mental illness. Um, but hopefully we go into a chronic or into a remission and you know, they can see that there is a future. And so um, I think America especially, and Canada's not far behind, has become the nation of let's take a pill for whatever ails you. Yes. Um, no, I, you know, if, if, if the child is so severely depressed and is thinking suicide and is so anxious and is not sleeping, then yes, a medication to kind of, I call it getting him or her over that hump mm -hmm. to a point where you can then begin to start strategizing and connecting with them and working. And the ultimate aim should always be, let's try and get off this medication. And no, never call Turkey. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. But let's see if we can build on his, you know, the strengths and, let's kind of get start getting off this medication because if you're on medication from five and you're still on it at 24 and you have another crisis, what are we going to give you? <laughs> yeah, the dose. <laughs> right. But, but at, at what point, you know, and there are so many children on multiple medications and yep. as a nurse, I know you take five medications at the same time. They all negate the effects of one another. Yep. 
and 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 do you actually want to have yes i know if you if you have schizophrenia and that doesn't usually happen as a child you, you know you can show signs of maybe age 14 15 it's more common at 16 to 18 schizophrenia is necessary to help you but there are also other things that you need to include in your day-to-day -day life that will enable you to continue moving forward. Mm -hmm. The pill, the A medication, is, is just a part of you. Um, and the same with a bipolar disorder. Um, but with depression, um, you know, you'll have a, a major depression and then hopefully it resolves and even though you still have that with you, it's a part of you, hopefully you can be off the medication and you've got other lifestyle strategies of a ways of, you know, managing your emotions and mm -hmm. how you deal with the negative thoughts. And negative thoughts are huge mm -hmm. in depression, as you know, and they multiply and they go right. crazy and they overwhelm you. And it's, you know, and so it's learning, um, you know, meditation, maybe mindfulness and deep yeah. breathing exercises. And I, I'm, I'm very much in support of a holistic approach to dealing with mental illness, but also just with all the, the research I've done recently and the, the finding the connection that depression and many mental illnesses but especially depression is caused by an inflammatory process and then they have the gut brain connection it makes a lot of sense to me and it, so, it, it does and that's something i've been researching a lot lately especially with yes. food and breath work and meditation right and how the breath, and, yep yep keep going and, and i just i just read a paper um on aces so adverse childhood events and they find that that definitely increases your likelihood of developing a mental illness as a child, teenager, young adult, and it impacts you in later life if you don't get help. But again, it's all the inflammation in the brain that all the different abuse or bullying has done to you as your brain is developing. And again, it's promoting exercise, diet, meditation journaling mindfulness and then counseling support and medication is just like a teensy bit and i think this is what we need to start moving away from is that don't think by giving your child a pill he is fine you've still got a lot of work to do and it's not just the parents it's the school system i i my philosophy is it takes a village to raise a child and to me it takes an entire community an entire society to help our kids with mental illness mm -hmm. and we really have to start coming together to help our kids because i mean so today right 16 teenagers will die by suicide in the usa fact 16 mm -hmm. and by the end of today by midnight tonight just across the usa 3,041 students in grades 9 through 12 will attempt suicide. Oh, my God. Right? And that doesn't include grade 8 or lower. They haven't done that research, but they estimate that could be another 1,000. So just today alone, across the United States, there are almost 5,000 kids in school that feel their life is so 
horrible and they have no future and the pain is so bad that it's not worth living that they will attempt suicide. 16 will succeed. To me, that is horrific stats. That many kids who believe that life is not worth living is, is heartbreaking beyond belief. That, that cannot be, that should not be. And that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I mean, speak up, shout out, oh, educate. It's like, uh, you know, um, when I give all my presentations and if I use a PowerPoint, my eyes, it's engage, educate, empower. If we engage and educate our kids, we'll empower them to develop the skills and learn the strategies and the confidence that they can continue to move forward. Um, but they, it begins with engaging them. We have to listen to them and we have to um, make sure they know that we believe them. That's a big thing. And whilst we can say we don't quite understand what they're going through, but we're willing to be with them. And that's a big thing. Be present with them and help them navigate this journey. Because each person's journey is unique, but the kids need to know that they are important and that they are loved and they are believed. And I think that's what a lot of kids are, are thinking is where teenagers that have survived suicide attempts have said, and there are, they've left notes which say, um, no one loves me. I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. And no one will miss me if I'm gone. And the kids need to hear and understand that they will be missed, that they are important, and they are loved. And I don't think kids are hearing that enough. And, and I think you're. And I think you're right. Uh, a lot of what you said is a thousand percent right. And these are thoughts that have been ringing in my head for so so long. So uh, it's definitely a reason why you and I got connected. Um, like I said, you know, I just felt this pull, and it just organically happened with you and I. I mean, you just mentioned so much good information. And, and one thing I want to go back to is, you know, the holistic approach. Um, so many people think that mental wellness is not in mental wellness and physical wellness are two different things. They're all, no, no. it's all the same. They're all together because in my life, that's what I experienced. And I went to so far the other side of the pendulum when I was in, in college and, and or late high school all I did was work out and, and eat healthy and do this and do that. But I was physically sound and mentally dead. I, yes. my, my emotional wellness was deteriorating and I was dying. My physical wellness and health was through the roof. I couldn't have been in any better shape. That's, I solely obsess on that every day. And so to your point, especially with the team, I always had people that would hold me accountable. And that's where Authentic Act came from is the awareness, character, and team. I asked myself one day, you know, what, what are the few things that has got me through my life? And those are the three things that came to mind, awareness, character, and team. Because I was always aware, but I was aware in the wrong areas. You know, being yes. obsessed and compulsive, I mean, I could tell you how many times somebody blinked, what, you know, how they would act. I, I was big on body language. I was big on like, you know, just studying things around me and then everything was around me, not within me. You know, it's, yes. I was aware of everything else but myself. And then yes. my character, my, my character had been built from a child. Um, but 
my character and a lot of people tie this into values. I, I really had no character value system. I had things I'd subscribe to or believed in, but would I live or die by some of those things at the time? No. And that's something I start asking myself is what, who, you know, like you said, every person is unique, but what is that mm-hmm. character and that value system that pertains to you that no matter what, who, when, where, how comes into your life, you stand by that character. Okay, you and, stay true to it. Yeah, that, that's right. And that's what, you know, and then the third piece, I looked at team. If it wasn't for my mother, those coaches, the few teachers I had in my life, other people, people I still have in my life now, yourself, people like that, that came into my life or we came into one another's life that took my life to a a whole nother level. I had a relative. um, He just passed away, but he was a mentor to me and a relative. He too was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive. He was a second cousin of mine and he owned a uh, talent uh, management company. He, he was 68 when he passed away. And uh, that was just recently. And that man, my mom, you know, my mom basically passed the torch on to him and, you know, she did everything she could, but my mom and dad, you know, they didn't know anything about business or, you know, I grew up in a two stop like town, you know, you know, bless yeah. them, you know, they, they, you know what you don't know and you don't know what you don't know. So at that point, you know, I just wanted to be uh, uh, just a local guy in a two stop like town and help people. And then he plucked me from that mentality, put me on a plane, flew. I've never been on a plane before. We we flew to to Las Vegas and this man taught me so much about myself and the, and the trip was fun. Sure. But there was so much impact in that one journey that it, it continued on for five years. And, you know, up until he died. And he taught me so much about myself because like we said earlier, he was able to speak the same conversation in the same frequency because he's lived yes. it. You know, he lived was, it. Yeah. He was in an insane asylum. This man and, and this man had everything. Still still grew up in the same town, but multi, multi-millionaire. Um, you you never look at him and be able to tell, but you could always tell me he walk in a room in his confidence and he just own a room. And you could never look at that man and tell he had a single dose of uh uh, mental illness or mental health issues and really that's a piece of why he died and you know he had some esophagus issues but he ended up I think falling into another deep depression and and that's a side story but you know it, it's those people that come into our lives that these children don't have access to because you know they're not, they're not going to hop on Facebook or LinkedIn or social media to reach out to people they're seeing other people's lives that look way better than theirs you exactly. know and it's putting them into a mind state in, in an area that's even more detrimental because they may not have a family, you know, that they can reach out to and ask. And like you said earlier, that was one of the, the biggest hurtful things to me is when parents are in such self-denial or they're in a certain demographic class that they're so afraid that everybody else is going to think negatively of them. Exactly. Or, even on the, or even on the flip side where the parents don't have resources, but they would do anything they could to possibly help their child. That's, that's the position my mom was in. We were living off a a teacher salary, you know, and we didn't have much of anything, but they provided me with everything I needed and and more, you know, and it, and it got me to levels of life that I wouldn't have experienced otherwise. Um, So tell us where you're at now in your journey, because I mean, everything else aside, you and I are definitely going to come together and I want to get involved personally and we can continue this, you know, outside of the episode, but, um, I want to be a part and see how you and I can work together. So share with the audience, 
share with the audience what you're doing now and what, what, you know, you're traveling around to different States and areas um, doing for different schools and children. So right now I'm actually back in Canada. I came back two weeks ago. I'm here for a couple of weeks and then I'm heading back down to the States. And so I'm, using Kansas as my kind of midway point because it's easier to fly out to all the different destinations and May is mental health awareness month so my my publicity team are actually hard at work I've got um, media and speaking engagements in Louisiana and Florida and in Kansas and they're also looking at Texas and Nashville right now, but they're also um, speaking to some people on the East Coast about me heading up there. So um, certainly what anyone can do if they're interested, they can go to my website, www.tracymaxfield.com. And there's so much info on there, um, but they'll find all the upcoming events. So kind of know what I'm doing, where I am. And um, yeah, they'll find info about my book. I've also got lots of really great articles on depression, bullying, mental illness, and a special section just dedicated to children and teenage mental illness. And so it's, uh, kids love it. There's lots of great articles that relate, they can relate to, but also it's great for parents and teachers. It's, you know, the warning signs of suicide, how to talk to your child about mental illness, things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, definitely for everyone listening out there, check some of that out. Uh, I was looking at your website and have been for the past week or so, and you've got so much helpful information there. Uh -huh. So many resources in one place. Um, it's a very useful place for people to visit and being able to access so many different categories, so many different levels of information. Yeah. Um, and that's what I really love about you too, is because you truly do have a holistic mindset and can honestly say, Hey, you know, medication is, uh, a fraction, if any, a you know, fraction. Absolutely. Yes. and that's, uh, you know, that was what was unique with me is I, I was on Zoloft for a little while and I, you know, I made the mistake of quitting cold Turkey. I was in college and, um, you know, but medication in my situation didn't help. Um, so I, I, I went, I've gone through a vast, uh, majority of my life without medication and, you know, but I had other resources in place with friends and family and, like you said, with meditation, breath work, you know, these are things now I'm implementing in my life at 26 that if I'd had at 16, you know, like you, like you mentioned, the trajectory point, I mean, it, it just shifts your life in such a way because you don't know these things at 16, yeah. 15, 12, you know, you're trying to figure out what you're going to wear to next day. Does your shoe have a scuff on it? Yeah. Uh, are people going to pick on your new haircut? Uh, did you finish the homework you're assigned for? You got to try out for baseball <laughs> practice. You, you know, you've got an assembly coming up. You know, so many things that are inside of that world that you're living in. And that's the thing. We create our own realities. And when we're thrown into these detrimental places that aren't supporting us, we start creating false realities. And it makes it even worse for us to survive in. Um, man, I mean, this has just been a huge impactful emotional conversation that I'm usually a very talkative extrovert, but I am actually <laughs> left speechless Tracy. And, uh, it's Thank something, you. it's something for me that I feel like came in my life at a certain point. Um, 
because I just hit a depression a few days ago. I actually just posted a video on LinkedIn about it. Um, and I felt like I felt like I did back in, you know, October because October was my pivotal mo uh, moment. Last year in October was the first time ever, Tracy, in 26 years I ever loved myself. And that was probably, oh my goodness. That was probably my mom's biggest wish is, um, you know, she'd see me at sporting events and carnivals and doing things. And I, and I, I couldn't ever have a smile. I never had a smile on my face, really. And then I, I never understood it. Really, I never understood it even at 26, even now. But now I'm starting to understand because I did not love myself for the first yeah. time. And a lot of it had to do with the holistic approach. You know, I had a strategic regimen uh, that I was doing because my awareness was in place. I knew I had to make a change because I was dying. Because when I left college, got my first job, the pendulum swung. I stopped going to the gym. I stopped working out. I would eat cookout McDonald's two or three times a day. I gained all this weight. And I, speaking of a rabbit hole, I don't know what digs further than a rabbit hole or whatever that animal is, <laughs> I was down there with the badgers and all of them. So yeah. It, was, yeah. it was one of those things that um, I think was important and was meant to happen in my life. Uh, I think just with you and I being so similar and having such similar experiences, but then now being able to be gifted with the voice to be able to express things that other people aren't able to express, I needed to hit that lowest of the low of the low because just of October last year, I went to the mountains, you know, I, I had that spiritual moment and uh, I looked in the mirror and started crying. And it, the first time in my life, I loved myself. The first time in my life, I told myself I liked the thoughts I was having because I would use being an extrovert to get out of my mind. I would use pe people and I got it. I got really addicted to sex and I got addicted to food and all these other external vices I fell into that trap and then for I just broke down. And for the first time in my life, I loved who Lee was. I loved all the work I had put in because I was my own worst critic. You know, I was fat. I was oh, we are. We yes. certainly are. Yes. And, then, and when you and when you throw mental health into that, I mean that's just yeah. gasoline to a to a a fire, you know, a, a wildfire. And oh, absolutely. Yes. It's it's like if a helicopter flew over and did nothing but pour gasoline. You know, that's, that's the image I tell people. It's just, you know, for me to already be in that mental state, it's one thing to be a self-critic, but to already have the, the past history of the mental wellness, man, I mean, I, I was dying and for something in my, you know, my life changed in, in October, you know, I started my own business. I started this podcast and, you know, it's one of those things that being so young, I still don't know what I don't know. And I don't have a fear of being wrong. But I do know what I know now, especially with mental health and something that you can't get out of a book, you can't study, you can't go to college for, you can't get a, a certificate of completion. No. Around. You, no. have, you have to have lived it to be able to tell it. And Absolutely. that is my true one gift I hold to my heart. And, and same thing that you're sharing with the world is that is a true gift that going through that pain, now we have the purpose of helping others. And man, I mean, we could continue on talking for hours, but I guess for the, the sake of the listeners, I, uh, Tracy, I appreciate you so, so much for, you know, getting on the show, sharing all the information and knowledge and experiences that you had. Um, I can't wait to continue the conversation with you and see what we can come up with together. 
Um, I'm glad that I went back and looked at that old post I had put on LinkedIn because so many people had recommended you and I talk. And, you know, I fell in that self-depression hole again recently. You know, I, I started witnessing self-doubt. I didn't think people wanted to hear me or like my voice or I hated hearing my own voice. I didn't want to record a podcast. It's all nothing but voice. Um, you know, and, and especially with the business, starting that out and, and not having a lot of money and living off my savings account and just so many self-conflicting and self-crippling thoughts that come to my mind. I said, you know what? I pulled myself out this week. I went back and looked at those comments. I said, man, like so many people were, were sending me tra to Tracy's way. There's got to be a purpose behind that. And so thank you so much for for getting on and, 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 and being so engaging and open-hearted and vulnerable for everybody. I mean, I, I have not had a conversation like this blow me away and I can't remember when I've had amazing conversations in their own light, but when it comes to mental health, I have not had a conversation this impactful. Um, I can't remember the last time and it's, I'm at a loss for words. So thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. My pleasure. And I can't wait to continue this. Um, so for everyone listening, go check out her website, tracymaxfield.com. She's on LinkedIn. Do you have Instagram, Facebook? People can find oh, you. Oh, yeah. All, yeah. All the social media links are actually on the website if they scroll down to the bottom of the page. Perfect. Well, be sure to follow her out, folks. Uh, follow her. And, uh, man, this has been another impactful episode of authentic act i appreciate everyone listening i hope this has touched your heart and your mind and your soul as it has with me um and that just goes to show you that organic conversations this you know nothing was by the script we had no i had a list of questions that we didn't doesn't even matter at this point because what we talked about was real true life issues and man Tracy, you live it and you show it and you help others. So thank you, everybody listening. Thank you. And uh, this has been an episode of Authentic Act. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, feel free to share this with your network. If you find this is impactful in your life, please share it on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever social media platform you're on and direct people to this knowledge because who knows whose life this can touch. And this is... <laughs> something tremendously important that's going on in our world. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. And this has been another episode of The Authentic Act. Mm -hmm.